How's everyone doing? All right. We're going to be looking at a couple of things today. Looking at a couple of things. Screen work. <coughs> We're going to be looking at our need for theology as well as the omnipresence of God. So we're going to get into what and who. And I'm going to go ahead and open this up to us here today. Uh, our need for theology. I will start off with just, ans- with just asking you this question. What is theology in the first place? The study of God. The study of who God is. My next question is this. Um, who needs theology? Everyone, right? Yes, sir. I'd like to expand on the word theology a little bit. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Theology is the study of God as God has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture. Amen. It's a genetic sign that theology is limited to Scripture. Oh, amen. Amen. Good qualification. Speaking on who needs theology, the entire church needs theology. Um. The study of God, the knowledge of God, it's vitally important and should be the topic that every image bearer of God is concerned with. Not only the pastor, right? Not only the pastor, not just the men either, right? But also the women. It is, it is your duty as a Christian to be utterly concerned with who God is, to study his word. I remember... <clears throat> I think I was just saved, and I had a zeal for God. I mean, you should have a zeal for God. You're just saved from your sins. You have this newborn zeal for God, this love for God, and you're in a church where people are saying, wow, look at your zeal. I mean, you love to read the Bible. You love to read theology. I mean, you love to read what God did in the past. And you're reading, you know, I mean, they, they're seeing all these things, and they say, well, you, you must be called to be a pastor, Right? You've probably heard this. I mean, just be like, no, I'm just a Christian. I mean, you're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love his word. You're supposed to love theology. And I, that, I mean, I, 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 at the time I was thinking, maybe I am supposed to be called a pastor. I mean, that was like, you know, it was right when I was saved about like nine years ago. But that wasn't me really thinking rightly. Uh, I, that what she was pointing out, what she saw was just a love for God. And so theology, a concern with who God is as he has revealed himself with scripture, concerns every Christian. It concerns every believer. If you don't like to study who God is, there's an issue There's an issue. God is utterly important to your life and to the life of every image bearer of God. God is is vitally important for every person to love God, to know God. And my next question is this. What is the ultimate aim of studying who God is? To worship him, to glorify him, right? It's to know God. We want to study God so that we might know God, to have an intimate relationship with God and his son. You see this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that you may, that they may know you. It's a knowledge of God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
And my next question is this. Can you study the word of God without knowing the God of the word? Can you study the word of God without knowing the God of the word? Absolutely you can. And so this is not, that's not just our aim, right? The study of God should go further than just a knowledge of God, right? It should go further. You remember Jesus speaking to the Jews in John 5. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Did the Jews search the scriptures? You know for sure they searched the scriptures. They studied the word of God. They searched them like Bereans. But they missed a very crucial point. It says, they testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me. They stop short of the ultimate aim of the knowledge of God, which is to bring you to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the ultimate aim of the word of God, is that you might know the God of the word. And a mere knowledge of God's word is not enough, as we have just seen. Any comment on that? These are some basics for us, but I just want to put our hearts in the right place as we get into this. I know Pastor Lynn had begun the attributes of God with a specific goal in mind that I wouldn't that we wouldn't just put before you some kind of systematic, you know, throw a bunch of scriptures on here, you know, so that you know we can just have them in our minds, but we want the scriptures to impact us. We want the scriptures to lead us to God. We want the knowledge of God to transform us. Did you did you want to say something? I think along those lines of just thinking about second uh first Peter two, that he's going to make us long for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow up into salvation as you're saying knowing the God of the word. Yes. Amen. So mere external knowledge, we see that even in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries, and all knowledge, really speaking about revelation, if you have all of revelation, if you have all of this knowledge and you have all faith, so as to remove mountains, if you have great faith coupled with knowledge, but you lack love, what does it say you are? You are nothing. You are nothing. So mere external knowledge is not sufficient for internal transformation. And the goal of theology is an intimate, it's a vibrant living relationship with God. And so moving on from there, J.I. Packer once said this in his book, Knowing God. Some of you, uh, I know we we went through a study on knowing God here in our church. It was uh, an incredible study. He gives you a systematic he kind of goes through, gives you a systematic view of the attributes of God. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very well done, very sound. J.I. Packer once said, The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man, as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And so for us, there is no greater or more important 
study than that which has been given to us in the scriptures. You should see it like that. The endeavor of your life. There's no important study than what your life looks like in the time you spend in this word, knowing this word. There's nothing more important than knowing God. And as one author says, there's nothing more important for theology and devotional life than having a clear and correct view of God. Errors, both theological and practical, can often be traced back to an incorrect view of God. As you all know, where do heresies come from? Where do false views come from? It it comes from uh, uh, a deficient view or knowledge of who God is. My next question is this. Beloved, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Open-ended question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Holy. Amen. As, as, as honest as possible, that not just one thing comes to mind. Sure. Really, multiple things that are all you know put together and scrambled almost, not in a in a undecipherable way, but yeah. Um, but it's not just one simple thing. A multitude of things come in your mind. Creator, sustainer, one who gives all things, takes away things. I mean. Really, a full orb thing, and you don't even hit the 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 mark with all of the things that come to mind because absolutely uh, it's all lacking. Amen. There sh- and there should be a lot of things that come to your mind, and they will, right? You probably don't have one thing, though. You you maybe some things are uppermost in your mind about who God is. A. W. Tozer says that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us. These thoughts, the thoughts of God and who he is are the most important things about you and me. They're the most important things about each of us. And so as you read God's word and study, and study the revelation of himself, ask yourself, are my thoughts of God biblical? Am I constantly measuring the things I believe about God with this, the measure of faith with the word of God itself? Are your thoughts of God worthy of God? Are they worthy of God? And so this is an in- incredibly important question because what you think of God will absolutely dictate how you live. It will dictate everything else in your life, what you think about God. A low view of God, what will a low view of God generally produce? Doubt. Unbelief. What else? A holy lifestyle. I certainly can. Probably, uh, there probably won't be such a definitive break for sin if you have such a low view of God. Low, low worship, base worship. Wrong view of self, right? Ultimately, if you have a wrong view of God, you're going to have a wrong view of self, right? 
Now, so I, 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 I just say to hear that a low view of God will generally produce a biblically substandard manner and life of worship. What about a high view of God? What will that produce? Holiness. Holiness. What's that? Worship. worship. What's that? Humility. Humility. Man, what's that? Reverence, absolutely. It should produce all of those things. It should produce godly fear. It should produce humility. It should put you in your place, right? You should see God who he is. A high view of God will generally produce a fervency to know and grow in the knowledge of God. I remember when I was first saved, I had a very low view of God. Based on the environment where I was saved, I had a very low view of God. If I, if I would have stepped foot in this church, I would have been shocked, right? I would have been shocked because of the life that I was living. Such a substandard way of living and worship. And um, I did not have this great, I did not have this great influence. And it's not just the people necessarily who are right responsible for your growth and things like this. Uh, but that was kind of the environment that it wasn't really concerned with knowing God you're saved. And so um, it wasn't even a, a Lordship church, you know, all, all these different things that produce just a very low view of God and worship, but a high view of God, when you begin to see him rightly, it will produce in you a fervency to know and grow in the knowledge and grace of God. It will, it will produce in you a desire to please him whom you love. And so a high view of God ultimately lives with an eye to God's glory. And so we, as we come to this study of God's attributes, let us come with tender hearts and a true desire to know God. Ask yourself this, is that desire within you? Have you come today with a desire to know God? A desire to be fed the knowledge of God? And my hope is that in this study, as it is Pastor Kaler's, that we would not just be giving you more knowledge to stack on the shelf of your mind somewhere, you know, up on this high shelf that because you want to accumulate, right? We don't want to puff you up, but the, the, the object of this goal is to inflate you. The object of this study is to humble you and that it would produce an awe of God and the love of God within you. And so just to lay the foundations of our study as we just continue, I wanted to lay that reminder before you. Put these things before your mind so that we might prepare ourselves for the attributes of God. And today we're going to be speaking about, let's see here, is it in here? Yep. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Today we're going to be speaking about an incredible uh, uh, attribute of God. I think I spelled that right. God, the attribute of God's omnipresence. What is an attribute, right? We, we, we wouldn't talked about this, but an attribute is simply a property, a quality, or a feature belonging to a person, 
or a thing, right? This is just the, the regular dictionary uh, 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 definition of what an attribute is. But in the Bible, an attribute of God is what we know to be true of who God is, what we know to be true of him. And so while all of God's attributes can be distinguished, each attribute is inseparable from the other attributes. Each attribute necessarily encapsulates every other attribute. You can see this when you just think about God's attributes. Since God is holy, what is his love? It's holy, right? Since God is holy, his love is holy. Since God is eternal, Psalm 119, 142 says his righteousness is eternal. His righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It is his righteousness is, I mean, there's no category for this in the Christian life, right? His righteousness is forever and ever. Isn't that, I mean, how do you, you can only talk about righteousness in these terms when speaking about someone like God. His righteousness is forever. His righteousness is eternal. That wouldn't make sense if you said that about me or you, right? And so moving on, this term omnipresence, you won't find it in Scripture, but you will see that this idea and the concept and the reality of God's presence is taught everywhere in Scripture, both implicitly, both explicitly. And so omnipresence, this word omni, does anyone know what this means here? All or everywhere. It's Latin for all or everywhere. It's God is everywhere present. He is omnipresent. God is present everywhere at once. And so when we think about God being everywhere, what we're saying is that God is infinite. He is opposite what we are. We are finite creatures. He is. God is in his eternality, in his existence, he is by necessity absolutely everywhere. It's incredible. He is everywhere. He doesn't have spatial limitations like we do. Nor he, can he be confined or contained by something like we can. His presence is without form. And then here's the thought. There is no place. There is no place without God. There is no place without God. In fact, it is impossible to exclude the essential presence of God from anything. Indeed, I would say there wasn't a second of time when creation was born by the command of God that God did not fill all created time and space. Of necessity, when God creates something, he fills the exact same thing. He fills it with himself, right? When you have the world, God creates the cosmos, but you have, you know, this little world here, the world in which we live. When God creates something, he doesn't bend around it, right? He's everywhere present. His essence is everywhere. It's it's all pervading where God makes something, he necessarily fills it. God is everywhere. He cannot put something where he is not. He cannot put something where he is not. Yes? Brandon, that's why almost the word filling it is even wrong because it almost implies that God was not there prior to him filling, filling something that he tried. It's almost inadequate even to speak of God having to provide his presence somewhere. Sure. 
Yeah, it's I guess it's the anthropomorphic kind of a way to understand. Yeah. Not yeah, in a way that we might apprehend him, but not comprehend him. But whatever God creates, necessarily he fills. He's there. His of God whose whose essence and presence is never ending. He cannot put anything where he is not. Right? It's an impossibility. It doesn't exist in God's category. Um, and this is because he is omnipresent. And so God necessarily creates everything within himself. And this is what Paul meant when he said that it is in him. It is in God. It is in God that we live and move and have our existence, that we live and move and are. It is in God, right? A.W. Tozer says this, In his infinitude, he surrounds the finite creation, and he contains it. He surrounds it, he fills it, and he contains it. There is no place beyond him for anything to be. And then he says, God is our environment as the sea is to the fish and the air to the bird. So God cannot exclude himself from anything. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. It's in the presence of God that we do all of these things because God is everywhere. As Jeremiah twenty three twenty four says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth declares the Lord. Do I not fill it? God is boundless. He fills everything when it comes to space and time necessarily. He is boundless because he is beyond measure. He is never ending in his presence. He's limitless. He's without limitations as it regards his essential presence and greatness, right? Contrary to the boundlessness of the true God are the limitations of false gods, right? Of idols. You see this in scripture everywhere. Turn with me to Acts 17. Turn with me to Acts 17. You remember when Paul went to Athens, the Athenian society had such an obsession with idols and stories that they were eager to hear about those which were new. That's what you see in verse 21. They loved hearing new stories. They loved hearing these things which were new, were strange. And Athens, like many places, was a center of idolatry. I think Emilio even, an ancient proverb, declared that there are more gods in Athens than men. I think Emilio had, had mentioned that, I think, maybe in his last sermon. And so at this time... Paul would have seen temples, statues, shrines erected all around the marketplace that surrounded Mars Hill. You remember, this is where Paul preached on Mars Hill, preached a sermon on Mars Hill. And it is on Mars Hill that Paul confronted the Athenians about their idolatry. Can you say something? Stretching? I also brought a picture if you're interested in seeing it. Have you seen Mars Hill? Pastor's not going to take you there, so I won't be spoiling anything. Let me show you this if I can. Mars Hill is literally a huge rock. 
Can you see that? There's people on top of it. It's literally a huge rock here. I have another one here. It's, it's actually a, a, a pretty incredible site. It's a famous site for this very reason. This is people, there's a, there's a staircase hewn in this rock. And it's very famous for, uh, for the purpose we're talking about. Actually, you'll see right here, there's a little plaque on the side of Mars Hill, and it has, and it has uh, Paul's sermon in Acts 17 on it in Athens. Pretty incredible. So we're talking about a historical fact. We're talking about Acts 17, literally planted on the side of this rock where Paul, uh, where Paul preached. And so Paul was standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill in this place, which is this huge rock. He took the opportunity to, he took the opportunity to proclaim a deity that they did not know, Right? To proclaim an unknown God to them, a God that they did not know. And what does he say? So in contrast to their handcrafted idols and false gods who dwelt in temples and who were not omnipresent, Paul proclaims the true God in verse 24. Let's go there. He says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so this confrontation amounted to a rejection of idolatry, a rejection of false deities, because they were handcrafted. They were formed by the art of men. You see that in verse 29. They were formed by the art of men, and their presence could be contained. Their presence could be confined by a man-made temple, right? And so this description does not fit the God who does exist, the one who is in verse 27, when it, when it is exp- expressing the omnipresence of God, who is not far from each one of us. And so Paul was admiring the objects of worship. God is not a physical object of worship like they were admiring. As Paul was walking through and seeing their objects of worship, he is not made of gold. Verse 29, you see that in the text. He is not made of gold. He is not made of silver or stone right, by the art or thought of man. That is an idol. You can put them wherever you want. You can fill a whole temple with idols. People still fill temples with idols, right? This isn't just an ancient practice. This is something that people are doing. So the dwelling of God in a temple is not like the dwelling of an idol in the, in the temple. God does dwell in a temple, right? Hasn't he dwelt in a temple before? What's the difference? What's the difference between an idol and a temple? Right, We just kind of went through some of those things that you see in the text. But what else are the, what's, the, what's a bigger difference between an idol and the God who does exist? Just plainly, one is God and one is not. Yep. exhibits attributes that no one else can. What is that? Or, or what is that? What is this attribute? The aseity, of God. The God does exist within himself. He is self-existent. Mm-hmm. And also I would say this, that what, but what we see here is Paul even teaching on or alluding to the omnipresence of God. 
He points to what these idols are, and he, and he describes these idols, right, that you see there in verse 29, what they're made of. And so God isn't, he cannot be contained, right? We are just talking about this, about this. God is boundless. I, an idol is not boundless, right? Uh, he, he's not a localized deity in one building like an idol is. Right? God did dwell in the temple. He manifested his glorious presence in the temple. But was his presence exhausted in the temple? Absolutely not. God was everywhere at the same time, all at once, and also manifesting his presence in the temple, as well as in heaven. Right? So when we think about, right, we need, to, we need to really get our minds around what the essence of God, the presence of God is like, and how that impacts how we see where God dwells in places, right? That is vastly different from an idol. Vastly different than, so Paul, in Paul's mind, he is confronting them and their idols with the true nature of the God who exists. That he is not far from each and every one of us. He is present. He is near. It's in him, in God, that we live, move, and have our existence. And turn with me to Second Chronicles, if you would. That's going to be west in your Bible, way west. Second Chronicles 2.6. Can someone read that for me? Yes. And this is Solomon considering to build a house for the name of the Lord, to dedicate it to him, to be set apart for God and his purposes. Go ahead. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? Isn't that incredible? So even the authors of Scripture, they understood that this house would not contain the presence of God. It would not contain the essence of God. Vastly different from an idol like you see. St. Augustine says this, In no place is God's being either confined or excluded. God is not being held in by anything. You might say this is God's house. I think Emilio taught on that in a way that it is dedicated to him, set apart for God and his purposes. But he is not held bound to this place, to this building, which is made of all these different materials, right? And his being is not kept out of anything. He necessarily fills everything. He creates the bounds of everything, yet he himself is not bounded by anything. He is everywhere at, at, at every moment, and he is there in his entirety. God is everywhere in his fullness. Can you, come, I mean, like, you can't even comprehend this, right? That, that God is everywhere in his fullness. And so though he is present everywhere, his presence is not manifest everywhere. That's what you see in the Bible, that you, you see that God, we know sound theology, it declares that God is absolutely everywhere, but we may not always apprehend the presence of God. However, we see in Scripture, and I would say that God doesn't always manifest himself in a, in a tangible way, 
but he does manifest himself. Even in history, you see like even in revivals, God will absolutely manifest himself in a real palpable way with the conversion of sinners, awakening the world, reviving the church. You'll see that God is absolutely present, right? In ways that you would not apprehend him otherwise. The same is true in the Bible, that God is absolutely present everywhere, but he will visibly manifest himself. Where did God visibly manifest himself? I'm thinking in the Old Testament. In the cloud, in the garden, in the bush, right? So this is a different kind of presence, right? He will manifest. So God is absolutely everywhere, and he will choose at one point in time to manifest himself in a certain way right? He can fill an entire wilderness with his presence and at the same time manifest his presence, the fullness of his presence in a bush. He can do this visibly with a theophany, a Christophany, whether it's God revealing himself, whether it's the second person of the Trinity revealing himself in any of those ways. And so we're also to notice this, that though God creates all things, God is also to be distinguished from creation, right? God's existence doesn't require creation or space, though he fills all of space equally and at the same time. And also God is more present, sorry, God is not more present in one portion of space than in another portion of space. His presence is outside of time. His presence is inside of time. He transcends time and he is within time. So God is present throughout all things, yet is God all things? Absolutely not. He's present within all things, but God is not all things. He is distinct from all things, right? What teaches that God is all things? Pantheism. The heresy of pantheism teaches that God is everything and everything is God. That he is one and the same with everything that exists. Stam Storms describes pantheism like this. Pantheism asserts that God minus the world equals nothing. God minus the world equals nothing. Theism asserts that God minus the world equals God. God minus the world equals God. Pantheism is different from that. God is, is, is equated to everything that is created. And that's what you see in Scripture. God's existence and essence is not to be equated with creation or anything material. That the Bible states that the entire created cosmos is distinct from God. It's dependent on God and came into existence by the command of God. Uh, you see this in Second Peter 3, 5, which says that the word of, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. Psalm 148, 4 through 5 says, Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. And this establishes the existence of God prior to creation. Go with me to Jeremiah 23, 24. Let me know if you have any questions, comments. Twenty-three, twenty-four. 
says this, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? What's the answer? Of course not. What's, this is, he says, declares the Lord, and this is the proof that man cannot hide from God. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? So he says, there's nowhere where you can hide from God because he sees you, because he fills heaven and earth. And so look at the connection in, in the relationship that the presence of God has to the knowledge of God. The implication is that he fills all things by his presence. He who does this, he who fills all things by his presence, must of necessity know and see all things. Because he fills all things, he knows and sees all things. And so think of this. I mean, it's just incredible. We were just talking about this. That God's love is holy. His righteousness is eternal because these attributes really encapsulate one another, think of this. The presence of God is as vast as the knowledge of God. That's just incredible. The presence of God is as vast as the knowledge of God. Both of these, both of these attributes are never-ending. Both of these attributes are absolutely boundless. They are infinite. You can say that about any of the attributes of God. The knowledge of God is as vast as the presence of God, the wisdom of God, as vast as the grace of God. This is all true because every single one of his attributes are absolutely infinite. And so accordingly, what is the difference between the finite and the infinite between God and us, right? Our presence is confined to our bodies and our knowledge is confined to our brains. So to be confined is to be finite. It's to be bounded. It's to be limited. However, God's knowledge is not confined. It's not contained by a brain or his presence with a body, right? He is infinite in his knowledge as well as his presence, and this should be humbling. I mean, just thinking about, I think I'm going to teach on the, the omniscience of God, Lord willing, in the future, in the coming, in the near future. That everything you will know, or can know, everything you will know, everything you can know, will never exhaust or fill this insignificant chunk of brain tissue between your ears. I can measure your knowledge with my hand. Have you thought about that? I mean, everything you will ever know, Canada, will never exhaust this little piece of, of tissue. I mean, if you're a baby, it's a little bit smaller. Some of you, it's, you know, I won't go. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Listen, I, I, your knowledge is limited. What you know can be confined with my hands. I can hold your brain. I, I, I know. It's just, it's, it's so small compared to what God knows. That should humble you. You don't know very much, right? I, I can measure it with my hands. Everything you know exists between, right here. Everything you know exists in this little chunk of tissue right here. Put a, put a size to any kind of brain. The most genius man alive. I can say the exact same thing to him. I can measure your knowledge between my hands. 
take the brain of the size of the earth. Make the brain as, as big as you want. If you can find that brain, it has limitations. God's knowledge is forever and ever and ever. There's absolutely no bounds to the knowledge of God. And his presence is likewise. His, as his knowledge is forever running in every direction, if you can speak in those terms, so is his presence. Yes. The immediate thing that comes to my mind is how sometimes people would say, well, how is that even practical to a believer's life, right? And I think mm. it is the most practical piece of knowledge you can probably have as a believer. And I think what sums it up is Hebrews chapter 4, when it's talking about the rest that a believer can receive, and then it ends up on verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, Mm. sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrows, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, Mm. but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Mm. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Amen. Great verse. I mean, I mean, when, when you think about just how grand and, and inexhaustible that God is within his being, his mind, and his presence, and you can have that directly relate to you and your everyday circumstance in life. Mm. Um, That's really both a a very comforting thing and a very fearful thing at the same time. It is. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, we were just getting there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Amen. Literally right ne- my next verse, we were, we were going to end with that. But um, should, we, should we go? Or Okay, let me read it. Go with me to Psalm 139. Maybe I can end with a couple of just statements here. Psalm 139, let's read 7 through 10. He says this, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence If I ascend to heaven, so literally he gives us these cardinal directions. If I ascend to heaven, he's talking about north. He's talking about up. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is down, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, which the sun rises in the east. If I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea. I believe uh, one commentator says that the Mediterranean Sea is in the west of the Holy Land. Even there... Your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Since this is true, beloved, there is no escaping the holy presence of God. It proved to be vain endeavor on Jonah's part. You remember, he he actually tried to flee the presence of God. And he was haunted everywhere he went. He absolutely was. And so, like Brother Robert was just saying, the, the, the omnipresence of God is both comforting and convicting. Why is it comforting? Why is the omnipresence of God comforting? That's right. 
Yeah, yeah. It contains this guarantee, the omnipresence of God, that the actual nearness of God and a real communion with him can be enjoyed anywhere. You can enjoy communion with God wherever you would like to. And this is why the communion with God has never stopped. It, it will never end unless we end it. Unless by sin, right? Our communion with God is interrupted, but God is always present. There isn't a reason why you should not enjoy fellowship with God because he is everywhere. And his, and, and his divine omnipresence assures the believer that God is at hand. He is at hand to save in every place from any danger or foe his, that his people need salvation. And ultimately, we see that God transcends time and space. Because this is true, he transcends time and space, but he also fills them. And we see what God did as God coming down, that he still has the ability to enter into time and space in the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish redemption on our behalf as well. So as we continue this little series, we're going to end right now. Just continue to meditate upon these things. One person that says, practice the presence of God. Um, some people can take that uh, 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 maybe in a weird way, right? The presence of God is just like a vapor or, you know, something weird. Um, but bear in mind this. Remember that God is present. It's convicting and it's comforting. He's present with you at work. He's present with you when no one sees you, right? But bear in mind, practice, the, remember that God is present and this will impact everything you do. Let's go to worship.